Hello, and welcome back to Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you. I'm Adam, an English teacher who went to China in 2014 and taught English in a small city near Shanghai. This podcast tells the story of my troubled first year, so if you're new to the show, I'd encourage you to start at the beginning. That said, alongside the main story, many episodes focus much more on other issues about Chinese history and culture, and you don't really need to be following the story to listen to that part. Okay, on with the show. In 1803, a young Scottish physician called William Jardine joined the British East India Company aboard one of its ships, and it was as a capable young doctor traveling the beguiling Orient that he realized that whilst medical practice has its rewards, drug trafficking is even better. As a private merchant, Jardine established a series of successful trading companies which operated in southern China, mainly doing a roaring trade in the opium business. The Chinese government displeased by the British drug dealers, attempts were made to curtail the trade, leading to arrests and the confiscation and destruction of the drug. With righteous outrage about the lost loot, Jardine got to work persuading the British government to go to war with China. The so-called Jardine paper actually outlined military objectives and principles for the peace treaty, which would presumably come at the end. And by 1839. War was imminent. The previous century had been a good one for China. Since the Qing Dynasty took over from the Ming in 1644, the new Manchu leaders had a succession of decent emperors who got things done and expanded the territory of the Middle Kingdom to include Taiwan, Tibet, and Xinjiang. Not so good for the various peoples who found themselves under the yoke of the Manchus, maybe, but the Qing Empire rose to become a powerful, rich, and respected nation, with the finest silks and porcelains that could be found anywhere on earth. This had an inflationary effect when it came to the egos of the imperial household, and of course, the higher they rise, the harder they fall. While the Qing were happy to expand their territory across land, pushing into adjacent kingdoms, they tended to stop at the natural borders. Taiwan was about as adventurous as it got when it came to overseas settlements, and that's just 130 kilometers away at the closest point. Not extending the empire overseas was generally the Chinese way. The Yuan Dynasty heavyweight ruler Kublai Khan had attempted to take Japan in the 13th century. But he was repeatedly thwarted by typhoons, the so-called divine winds, that have a familiar name to many of us, but a different meaning: kamikaze. Then, in the 14th century, the first Ming emperor issued a Haijing or sea ban, ordering docks and ships to be destroyed. But not long after his death, there was an exception to this isolationist rule, and it was during this stage of the Ming Dynasty. That China ruled the waves as never before or since. It was the early 15th century, and the famous explorer Zheng He travelled great distances, taking vast fleets of hundreds of ships, 60 or 70 meters in length, some of which were large enough to carry 600 people. Some have said that they could have even been up to 135 meters long, 
carried up to one and a half thousand people. Either way, they dwarfed anything that Columbus took when he sailed to the New World later that century. Jung He explored down to Indonesia and went west as far as the Arabian Peninsula and the African continent, leaving Chinese migrants whose ancestors still live in communities in places like Indonesia and India. He delivered gifts of silk and porcelain to foreign rulers, brought back tributes from them for the ambitious Yong Le Emperor, the fellow who'd commissioned this expensive enterprise. Exotic goods were bartered and envoys were brought back to the Ming capital in Nanjing, where they were left in no doubt that the Ming Emperor was in charge around here. Zheng He sometimes used his military heft to resolve local conflicts, installing leaders around the Indian Ocean who would be loyal to the Chinese, paying tributes for the privilege, of course, and cementing Ming influence around the whole region. He took on pirates and controlled trade routes, bringing with him an overwhelming force designed to intimidate any potentially hostile communities into thinking that standing up to them was not worth the effort. The numerous expeditions of Zheng He generally established benign relationships with distant kingdoms which benefited the rulers back home in terms of payments and prestige. If you consider that just a couple of hundred years previous to this, the Mongols had come from the north and aggressively taken everything under their control from Korea to Poland, the Ming expeditions were an entirely different thing. But for many in the Ming establishment, controlling the world beyond China was antithetical to the concepts of the mandate of heaven to rule over the Middle Kingdom, a land bound by the so-called Four Seas. It was also expensive, looking after all those ships, and a powerful eunuch like Zheng He was always going to get on the nerves of some in the competitive world of imperial court power play. After the Yongle Emperor died, Zheng spent ten years doing chores on home soil, returning to the sea in his sixties for his last voyage, during which, so the story goes, although it can't be said for certain, he died and was buried, appropriately enough, at sea. After that, the naysayers got their way. Zheng He's documents were burned and the adventures at sea were stopped for good. China turned inwards once again, cutting itself off for 500 years and depriving itself of the technological developments which could have helped defend the empire when the Europeans showed up. China in the 15th century was on the cusp of beating the Europeans to the age of discovery. They had, after all, been the inventors of the compass, gunpowder, paper and printing, the so-called Zida Fa Ming, four great inventions, which were pivotal for exploration and communication and conquest. One only wonders what the world would look like if it was the Chinese and not the Europeans who had gone on to establish the colonial empires which have made the modern world what it is today. But maybe they never would have done it in the same way. Certainly Chinese friends would tell me that it's just not in their nature to take over like that. Although they are quite content with the idea that China is the regional hegemon, ruling the entirety of the South China Sea, which really goes very far from the mainland, and of course, the non-Han populations in Tibet and Xinjiang, well of course they should be under Beijing's thumb. And Taiwan, well of course that's China. And then there's China's Belt and Road Initiative, its investments in Africa and elsewhere, which are all about projecting China's soft power, putting the Middle Kingdom at the top of a pyramid of loyal states. Just as it is today, influence was widely projected overseas during the Ming Dynasty, and the Chinese were 
keen to be the preeminent power in the region. But the relationship wasn't one of overt subservience in the way that the British Empire ruled the waves and its dominions. The Europeans had a different idea about what was meant by empire, one that would reach deep into the Chinese imperial soul and help set it on a path to internal destruction. But before carving off parts of China, the British wanted to trade with it. In the late 18th century, British traders desperately wanted to get their hands on more Chinese tea. Tea had been introduced to Britain a century before by a Portuguese princess called Catherine of Braganza, who married King Charles II and became Queen of England. The English didn't much like her Catholic faith, but they did like her tea. And as a result, a new religion was born on these lands. One that continues to this day and shows no sign of dying out like those ancient ones, the mighty Kappa. Anyway, Canton, which is actually called Guangzhou, was the only port where this tea trading business could be done. And for the British traders, it was too expensive and there simply wasn't enough tea to satiate the booming appetite back home. They sent a selection of Britain's finest wares to the Qianlong Emperor to show him what great stuff his country could get with a little more free trade. But the Emperor replied that, basically, we don't have any need for that stuff. Following the worldview of the Ming, the imperial establishment were sceptical about the benefits of trade. The man who'd been sent to do the deal, George McCartney, came back empty-handed, but he did have a useful analogy to report to the king. The Chinese Empire, he said, is like a ship on the seas which might look impressive, but could quite easily smash against the rocks, if you know what I mean. The British thus went about working out how exactly to provoke that shipwreck. Enter the Opium. The British didn't introduce opium to the Chinese. It had been knocking about for centuries. During the 18th century, once people started smoking the stuff instead of chewing it, it started to become a real problem. The combination of opium and tobacco, called madak, had a special kick to it. In 1729, the Yongzheng Emperor banned opium. But as we know, the Chinese weren't able to kick the habit. Where the British were concerned, that presented an opportunity. How they went about this devilish scheme is really quite crafty and a little complicated, so bear with me. Since the Chinese didn't want to exchange anything with British products, merchants had to buy their Chinese tea with silver. The silver was expensive and it had to be borrowed from the British government. Selling opium would be a handy way to plug the hole. But the British East India Company weren't going to just go and break Chinese laws by selling opium illegally into China. No, no. They were better than that. Instead, they got a monopoly on Indian opium and auctioned it to British smuggling operations like the one our old friend William Jardine had established. They would then sail over to China, sell the opium to local traders and get, in return, silver, with which they'd go and get more opium back in India. The British East India Company used that silver to pay back loans and to buy tea from China, which they'd then flog back home in Blighty. And the whole thing would start all over again. It was a magical circle of fortune, with profits at every step, even for the Chinese traders in on the act. And the only losers were the addicts and the Chinese government, and the daughters of the addicts who occasionally got sold by their opium-addled fathers. 
opium was taken up by people from all levels of Chinese society, causing tragic social problems. It also played havoc with the Chinese economy, hurting the poor especially as ever. Where the silver had been previously flowing into China in exchange for tea, by the 1830s it was flowing out of China in exchange for opium. It's worth mentioning that there were British voices of conscience back home who protested the immorality of the drug trade, often on religious grounds. Christian missionaries in China saw firsthand the devastation of the drug on families and communities, but alas, the money was rolling in, as was the tea, and the British imperial mindset didn't put the well-being of the Chinese people in particularly high regard. The immorality of it seems so brazen to us now, but I do wonder if things are so different. In a few hundred years, perhaps we'll look back at this current age and wonder how we tolerated the starvation and needless suffering that goes on for so many countless numbers of people around the world. But that's a story for another podcast. Anyway, in 1839, the Viceroy Lin Zexu tried two things. He wrote to Queen Victoria to plead that she do the decent thing and stop the dirty trading. You're getting tea and silk, and we're getting poison, he said. No reply came. Probably Victoria never even saw the letter. Lin also went on a crusade, sentencing Chinese traders of the drug to death, and destroying as much opium as he could get his incorruptible hands on. This standing up to the British with such a clear just cause has made Lin Zexu a hero for modern Chinese. But it came at a cost. After a huge amount of opium was destroyed in Canton, the merchants demanded compensation from the British government or from anyone for that matter. They had lost their valuable goods and someone had to cough up. The British duly pointed their finger back towards the Qing government. It was showtime. The concluding parts of the subsequent war, the First Opium War, took place on the River Yangtze, or the Chengjiang, as the locals call it, meaning Long River. It is indeed long, the longest in Asia at 6,300 kilometres, beginning at the distant Tibetan Plateau and ending next to the wealthy international metropolis of Shanghai. It's said to provide 40% of China's fresh water and aids 70% of China's rice production and fish. Some of the bridges that cross the Yangtze River are the longest of their kind. For a few years, Sutong Bridge had the longest main span on a cable-stayed bridge anywhere in the world whatever that means. Anyway, that is precisely where I was going. Next time on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, we continue our tale of great imperial warfare, the British taking on the Qing as Penny and I cycle to the Yangtze. <laughs> <laughs>